morning. Oh, is it a bad day? How are you going? Let me. Good morning, church. Thank you. Good morning, Upper Decks. Good morning, Lower Decks. Good morning, streamers. Uh, Glad that uh, you could join us this morning. I want to start right up front by saying, at the end of this talk, I want to invite you to pray a prayer that you might become a Christian, or at least refresh your relationship with Jesus. And uh, I want to encourage you uh, to join me. That might seem like an unusual thing to do in the middle of a normal service, but it is possible that you've come to church even for a while and not given your heart to Jesus. And I want to give you that moment at the end of this time. Uh, It's possible that you're going through the religious motions and uh, trusting in them and not Jesus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Uh, It's possible that you might still be investigating the claims of Jesus, to which we are really glad that you're doing that and want to help you uh, find some answers that God gives us in Mark's Gospel. Uh, It's possible that you've come with your family and haven't owned faith in Jesus for yourself. So I don't want to presume any of those things and I want to invite you to join me in a prayer which says, I want to follow Jesus. Before I do that, though, I want to give you two reasons why you should pray that prayer with me this morning. The first one is this. Jesus is the liberator of souls. We're going to be hearing the question asked, who is Jesus? And uh, as we look through three scenes, uh, we're going to see that he is the one who has come to liberate our souls, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. And the second thing I want that's a good reason for you to give your heart to Jesus, is that Jesus is the one who raises the dead. And again, we're going to see it in the scenes before us this morning. Uh, So I want you to pray with me at the end of this time, either for the first time or refreshing your heart, because Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and worthy of our worship. Let me pray. Dear God, our Heavenly Father, open, your, open our eyes to the majesty of your Son, Jesus. Open our minds that we might trust him. Open our hearts that we might love him. Teach us from this part of Mark's Gospel so we might leave here rejoicing in the Son. Amen. Now we're going to look at three scenes in the public life of ministry as we work our way through Mark's gospel. The first one was read out for us. It might help you if you've got your Bible handy to have uh, it open to Mark chapter 5. There's two more scenes there too. Uh, The first scene sets up the question, who is this? Who is Jesus? And as you've come to church this morning, I'm wondering how you answer that in your own heart and your own mind. Uh, It's a scene or a couple of scenes that you've probably thought about before, but I want to help you come to them afresh and hear that question. Who is this? Who is Jesus? Uh, We start our scene in chapter 4, verse 35. Uh, Jesus has been teaching during the day. And in verse 35, it says, When evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they 
They took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A little bit later, we learn that the other side is the southeastern shores of Galilee, which are, give you access into the area of the Gerasenes, uh, the uh, pagan Roman area of the Decapolis. You find there a network of uh, Greco-Roman towns that the uh, Roman Empire has set up to administrate that part of the world. And our three scenes are geographically connected with travel to and from these places by boat. And the first scene finds us on the water with Jesus. Now, I want to say right here, our English versions blur what is a really clever wordplay from Mark in this place. There's a wordplay on the word mega, which we translate great. You'll find it three times in this first scene. In verse 37, there is a mega wind, a great wind. Uh, uh, in verse 39, there is a mega calm, a great calm. And in verse 41, there is a mega fear, a great fear. So feel free, feel free in your own Bible to scratch out the English versions and put mega wind, mega calm, mega fear, because they come together in a wordplay to ask the question, who is Jesus? Well, the scene gets going in verse 37. A great wind came up. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him in the middle of the storm and in their anxiety said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? The situation exposes to us their fear of death. And the sea was a great source of fear in the ancient world, even amongst experienced sailors. And though Galilee itself was a fairly calm uh, body of water, when certain conditions came into play, it could whip up into a stormy frenzy, which is what we see here. The disciples, distressed, fearing for their lives, wake up Jesus, who's asleep, down in the back part of the boat. Jesus gets up and rebukes the wind and the waves. Quiet, be still. And with the authority of his words, the wind died down and there was a mega calm. A great calm. I don't know if you've ever tried to calm a storm with your words. I have. It's pretty awkward. Uh, the first time I remember trying this, uh, I was with Susan at Niagara Falls, and it was a really blowy, blustery, rainy kind of day. I think I must have been reading this part of Mark's Gospel, and I thought, I'm going to give it a crack. I was standing to the side. There's a little waterfall uh, to, the, uh, to the main waterfall at Niagara Falls, and I got up there. Quiet! Be still! Sue's got the photo in her scrapbooking, if you want to see it later. Guess what happened? Nothing. In fact, it was worse than nothing because in that moment, the wind changed direction and a wall of rain just went <laughs> From that day on, I knew that I was not Lord and Jesus was Lord. 
The miracles in the Gospels are signs to the Lordship of Jesus, his authority, unrepeatable by us because he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In verse 39, Jesus rebukes the storm. It's in fact the same word that we've seen a couple of times, that Jesus rebukes sickness and evil spirits. The wind dies down and there is a great calm. And surprisingly then, in verse 40, Jesus rebukes the disciples. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? It's understandable fear from a storm and facing death by drowning. What's even more surprising in this passage is that the fear that the sailors had, the fishermen in that boat for, the, for drowning, was transferred to a greater fear of the calm. And in verse 41 it says, they were afraid with a great fear and asked each other, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Uh, in the three scenes we're going to look at, fear is involved in all three of them. There is a fear of death. And in the first scene, we see it's a fear of death by drowning. And there is a fear of the power of Jesus. The great calm frightened them as much as the great storm. They had great fear. And it caused them to ask, who is this? Now, with that question ringing in our ears, we come to the second scene, which again is geographically linked. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man ran up to him with an impure spirit uh, who had come from the nearby tombs. Now, Mark intro uh, introduces us to this tortured soul, and he gives us a fair bit of information for Mark. His uh, stories are usually pretty tight and clipped, but we get to meet this man in more detail. He lived in the tombs. No one could bind him, not even with chains. Even the chains on his hands and feet he broke out of. There was no one strong enough to subdue him, which rings bells for us as the reader from chapter 3. Who is the strong one who will bind the strong man? Night and day amongst the tombs in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And I think we're given enough information to have our sympathies raised towards this man. It's, it's written in a way that helps us to think, what a poor, disturbed soul, living amongst the dead, out of control. And that sets us up for a clash of kingdoms in verse 6 to 14. The man sees Jesus from a distance. He runs up to him. He falls on his knees and the conversation begins in verse 7 by the man shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. Jesus said, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. And again, as we've already seen in the last few chapters, the authority of Jesus as the King of Kings over the spirit realm, 
Uh, we see a little bit more action in this one described. In the occult of the ancient days, there was the belief that if you knew the name of your enemy, you could control your enemy. Here, Jesus asks the man's name. What is your name? My name is Legion, for we are many. And Jesus speaks to cast out those spirits. In verse 10, we see that the man, the spirits beg not to be sent out of the area. And we, will, we read about the pigs feeding on the nearby hills. The demons beg, send us into the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd of about 2,000 rushes down the steep bank into the lake and they are drowned. Now for the modern reader, the pigs raise some questions for us, don't they? Oh, poor piggies. We want to call the RSPCA for what happens here. In its context, the pigs remind us that we are in pagan territories here, not where the Hebrews and the Jewish people live. For the Jews, the pig was an unceremonial, was a ceremonially unclean animal not to be eaten or touched. For the Romans, however, the pigs were dinner. Uh, stewed pig for the common man, roast pig for the wealthy, a common delicacy for all. And so we read this destruction of the pigs with a bit of uncertainty. Our animal activist sensitivities are triggered. What we're meant to see is that the pigs went to their destruction in the sea. The demons were destroyed from the same place where the disciples were rescued from in the previous scene. The chaos of the sea saw the destruction of the evil spirits. Which leads us to verse 15 and 17. We see the liberated soul rejoice of the man who has been freed. Uh, the pig farmers ran off back to town to tell the townsfolk what had happened and what had happened to the pigs. The town folk came out to see Jesus and they saw with Jesus the demoniac man sitting quietly, clothed in his right mind. And when they saw him, they were afraid. And as the disciples in the boat were afraid of the calm, so the town folk were afraid when they saw the demonised man at peace, liberated. Who is stronger than the strong man in the tombs? Who could have liberated his tortured soul? Well, the answer comes to us in this passage, Jesus can. King of kings and Lord of lords. And uh, the pig farmers tell the towns also about what happened to the pigs. And in verse 17, when the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the area, there is fear about his power, probably generated by a superstitious way of thinking about power and also contributed to back to by a further fear of economic loss. They'd already lost the pigs. How else will this Jesus change our lives? 
And as Jesus was getting back into the boat, the liberated man who had been demon-possessed said, can I go with you? And in verse 19, Jesus says, uh, go home to your own people. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. I think that's a beautiful way of phrasing, go home and tell your people what the Lord has done for you in liberating you from uh, slavery to the demonic. And in a way, we're reminded here that Jesus is the liberator of souls. And Mark is going to go on to show us in his gospel that Jesus came to liberate our souls through his death at the cross. Sneak preview of chapter 10, Jesus says this, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We need not fear death because Jesus has come to liberate us from the consequence of death through his own death on the cross. And I really encourage you to come and join us on Good Friday where we can think about that great truth in more detail. Uh, Sue and I were in Perth for eight or nine years uh, where I served in Shenton Park uh, there was the local cemetery, Karakata, one of the better-known ones in Perth. It was the practice of a funeral for the mourners to meet all at the gate and walk behind the hearse and walk in uh, a procession to the chapel where the funeral service would be conducted. Gave you a little bit of time of reflection. Uh, the minister and the funeral guys walked in front of the hearse uh, they had the coffin in the hearse and then behind that was the mourning crowd. Uh, in the, uh, one of the early funerals that I took there, I was walking along and the funeral uh, director said to me, how do you think it's going to go the footy on the weekend? <laughs> and I'm thinking, what? We've got a dead guy in the hearse behind me. We've got all these sad relatives and you want to ask me about footy? Uh, in Perth, you had to have an opinion about footy. I said, go Frio. But then I turned the conversation on him. I said, what do you think happens to someone when they die? And he, he uh, looked at me and he said, oh, Padre, you won't like my answer. And I said, I've heard plenty of dodgy answers. Why don't you tell me? And uh, he was that kind of guy, so I got away with that kind of banter. He said, I just think when you die, you're put in the ground, end of story. And then he looked at me and he said, what do you think? I said, when you die, I think we meet Jesus face to face and he will be our just judge. What do you think of that? He put his head down, shuffled. We met the end and that was the end of the conversation. So I committed to every time I did that walk after that, I'd ask that question, what do you think happens? And I heard a whole range of answers. The, the liberated man went away and began to tell what the Lord had done for him. They heard his story and they were amazed. Now, there's one more scene that I want to uh, uh, have a look at with you. The third scene raises the bar one more step. 
And the third scene wants to remind us that Jesus is the one who raises the dead. It sets the scene for us in 21 to 24. And again, we get a geographical movement. Jesus again crossed over by a boat to the other side of the lake, presumably up to the north end where he had been ministering and serving and proclaiming. We know we're back in Jewish territories because the first person described to come to him uh, was a man who was a synagogue ruler, which immediately is intriguing that Jesus is welcomed and pursued by a ruler of the synagogue. We see a couple of his details. His name is Jairus. He's a synagogue ruler. He is a father of a daughter and his daughter is dying. And so in an undignified way for a synagogue ruler, he throws himself at the feet of Jesus and pleads, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so she may be healed and live. You don't have to be a parent to understand the desperation of that situation. And if you are a parent, you'll understand the desperation of having a child who's in a desperate situation. Jesus says, I'll come with you. And uh, in verses 24 to 34, there's really a uh, distraction to the flow of the plot. The crowd was so busy and pressed in on him that it slowed him up to get to that girl who needed help and saving and healing. He even heals another woman of her distress, and you can read about her distress in verses 25 to 24. Uh, such that Jesus leaves her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. It acts as a delay uh, such that in the meantime, Jairus's daughter dies. And we read in verse 35 that people from his household came with the message, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Now, in this moment, Jesus addresses the fear that Jairus and his family and friends were experiencing. And in an extraordinary couple of words, Jesus says to them, don't be afraid. Believe. In my ministry, on just a couple of occasions, I've had to do funerals for children they break your heart. One was my son Jack's friend. He was a twin who died in a car accident with his grandparents. One was Den Benjamin, a baby who died uh, in birth, but his mother still had to give birth to him. And in all those situations, there was great distress. Can you imagine Jesus' words in Jairus' ears? Don't be afraid, just believe. And I think in this scene, Jesus raises the bar on the kind authority that he has that we've seen in these last few chapters. We see that Jesus has authority to raise the dead. And uh, in verses 37 of this third scene, uh, they, they arrive at Jairus' home uh, Jesus uh, sees the crowd wailing in their traditional way. 
He comes to the, to the mourners and say, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. And in verse 40, they laugh at him. He puts them all out. He invites Peter, James and John alone with the father and the mother to come into the room where the dead girl was lying. He takes her hand. He speaks. Marx gives us the original language. Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old and they were completely astonished. Jesus has authority to raise the dead because he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Uh, Jesus seeks to keep this quiet. He gives strict orders not to let anyone know, but to give the, the girl some food. I think that's a temporal moment there. In chapter 1, we saw a healed leper spill the beans and the great crowds follow. I think here is a moment where Jesus wanted to stick to his mission, proclaiming the kingdom of God and not be distracted by the frenzy that the word about a resurrection would have. John tells us another moment where Jesus raises his close friend Lazarus to teach the same thing. Jesus has power over death and life. And again, I really want to invite you to Easter Sunday where we can think about the significance of the resurrection for us more deeply. So these three scenes come together to put the question to us, who is Jesus? Who is this who commands the winds and the waves, who rebukes demons and liberates souls, who raises the dead? He's Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. And the question really comes to us, how do you respond to this Jesus? As we've heard three scenes, there are negative responses to Jesus in these three scenes and there are positive responses to Jesus and I want to challenge your heart this morning to see where you're at in your response to Jesus. Some of the negative ones we've seen, the response of the disciples who are fearful about what they saw more afraid of the calm than the storm? Or is there the response of the pig farmers who were resentful of the economic loss that Jesus caused them and their pigs, fearful of how Jesus might turn their lives upside down? And then there's the response of the mourners, scornful of Jesus uh, at the possibility that he could raise the dead though their situation is we could be sympathetic with. Maybe the negatives are what lurks in your heart, fearfulness, resentfulness and scorn towards Jesus. This passage invites you to give your heart to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But there are fabulous positive responses here as well, aren't there? There's the gratefulness of the liberated demoniac who's so grateful that he wants to tell as many people as possible about what the Lord has done for him in his life 
There's the hopefulness of the delegation from Jairus's place. They were hopeful that he could help that girl in her sickness and death. And then there's the response of the parents, full of awe and amazement. I wanted to say grateful, hopeful and awful as a good matching preacher, but you know what I mean, full of awesomeness as they stand in awe of having their daughter restored. How do you respond to Jesus this morning? I want to finish this time by inviting you to uh, pray a prayer that if you've prayed it for the first time, will help you move into being a believer and follower of Jesus. And if you prayed it a second or third or fourth time, it will help you refresh your heart in your relationship with Jesus. Uh, The prayer has three parts. God, forgive me. God, thank you for Jesus. God, help me to live for him. We're going to have a look at the prayer. If this is a prayer for you, please join me as we pray it together in response to Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God, our Heavenly Father, forgive me for being fearful, resentful, or scornful towards Jesus. Have mercy on me. Liberate me from my fears and the consequences of my failures. Thank you for the compassion of Jesus. He rescues us, liberates us, forgives us, and raises us from the dead on the last day to bring us into peace. We praise him for these things. Help me from this day on to be hopeful in the face of fear, grateful for all Jesus has done, and joyful in sharing with others the Lord's kindness through Jesus. In his great name we pray. Amen. Now let me just say one more thing. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, I want to say to you, welcome to God's family and welcome to the local gathering of God's family here at Warunga Anglican. And if you didn't pray that prayer and you have more questions, let me encourage you to talk to someone, talk to Andrew or myself or Josh, that we might help you uh, see with your own eyes the majesty of Jesus that you might trust him. And if you've prayed a prayer like this before, again, and you're refreshing your relationship with him, let me say to you, welcome back. Come and speak to me. And we want to encourage each other in our walk of following Jesus. Well, Jesus is the Lord of all creation. Jesus is the liberator of souls. Jesus is the raiser of the dead. So we trust him in our hearts. Amen.